Welcome back to Hearness, Contemporary Art Practices for Connecting Body, Place and Space. At Hearness, we acknowledge the deep connection to lands and waters by First Nations people all around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Breen Lovett, and this month I'm delighted to be speaking to my partner in life and love, Mihal Lovett. Mihal is a writer with his first novel called Realm of the Hair to be published soon by Dixie Books in London. This follows a long career in writing for theatre spanning from 2001 with the Everyman Palace Productions, after which Mihal was a founding member of Blood in the Alley Theatre Productions with Lizzie Powell, Michael Patrick and Jeff Gould, who has directed some of Mihal's plays at the Courtyard Theatre London, Cork Opera House and Smock Alley in Dublin. He has described Mihal's work as fearless, sometimes shocking, sometimes sinister, more often darkly comic but always political. Mihal has also had his plays produced in New Orleans and his first radio play was on RTE Radio in 2002. He has a new radio play being released on the last Sunday of the month by West Cork Fit Up starring Joan Sheehy. There'll be links to all of these productions on hearness.org. Mihal and I are based between Ireland and Australia with 10 years recently living in the Blue Mountains on Gundungurra and Darug country. It's interesting to hear how living in that landscape has affected him and his writings that are set in Ireland. His work reflects upon the existence of being, being between worlds through characters that inhabit these hinterlands. The Rise of Snowdrops. On the 11th moon and the cold star opens through the grey and I feel my head straighten and wish to lengthen, moving toward the burning star. My seed is still well stacked with food and nourishment for many days, for I am a child of the forest floor. The eighth, ninth and tenth moon, I have obeyed the law of sleep and lie here waiting to rise. I hear it first before the others. When they see me rise, they know they have survived. Where I go first, others will follow. Another dark time has come to an end with this pioneer. I have survived, and thus you have survived. So I dedicate the rise of snowdrops to a lady who taught me about the importance of nature and uh, the love of nature and that's my mother um, and she's been very instrumental a real pupil of the field and the wood and uh, a lover of all flowers all plant life and my father is a very good storyteller there's a kind of a tradition in Ireland called the Shanghi and Shanghi is basically an old tradition of storytelling around the fireplace. So you would do what's known as a bohantiacht, which is basically you travel around to different houses and have gatherings and there'd be stories told around the dying embers of a fire and uh, great mystery and great shadows cast to the roof and warmth and light and story and drama and darkness and shadow. That would be a fairly common, for, for, for my generation anyway, I presume, I'm not really sure of others, but where I came from and the crew that I came out from, probably um, that that would be the starting point. Mm. Do you remember 
you know, the earliest time or one of the most potent times or images of your father um, telling stories when you were younger? Was that something that happened at home as well as, as out or was it more of a social thing? For him, it was um, kind of a performance-based. Um, there would be quite a, uh, a database, <laughs> for want of a better word, of stories that had been kind of collected by folklorists and particularly Eamon Kelly, who was an actor that was based in the Abbey, who had a, a huge collection of stories and had fashioned those stories into uh, monologues, for want of a better word. But the Shannon Key has a kind of, uh, it has a propensity to tangentialize and go off into spaces that don't necessarily serve the narrative, but serve to empower you to believe the person who's telling the story. And so uh, basically it was, he, he'd be asked to, to perform a story. So basically he has a, a, a rich collection in his mind, big uh, compendium of, of long stories, recitative stories that can go anywhere up to 15 to 20 minutes. And they're all off wrote. And so they're stories that are handed down generations and then slightly um, kind of amended or altered by each of the storytellers or would some be new stories as well? Traditionally, they would have been folkloric, you know, and each different area in Ireland has got their own either name for a local ghost that is called something else in another townland or another village or another county. Um, but basically, um, they would centre around a lot of um, com commune and communing with nature and so these stories reminded people of kind of a moral or an ethical guideline to to um to do your best the best you can but that there is always darkness and everywhere mm. and there's a great kind of an open gateway or swinging door or sliding door whatever you want to call it between the other world and and what we call reality here and whatever that term is it's a uh, comes through nature or it comes through animals or it comes through belief systems that are definitely pre-christian you know dating things back and so you have um you know myths around certain animals and of course people always think about leprechauns and fairies and stuff like that but the fairies is a real um for a long long time in folkloric history here anyway that they were very much feared and there was a lot of effort and uh, industry put in um to making sure that you weren't liable to their machinations you know that you weren't prone to their whim because it could go horribly bad mm. but there's still that underlying um, mysticism or belief in the fairy world in in stories that are told today would you would you think in the kind of shanaki is that a tradition that is continuing on now well a lot of the stories would center around that yeah depending on what the term you used little people other people spirits and they wouldn't necessarily be <laughs> what we think of let's say the the english victorian representation of fairies mm. they would be spirits sprites gins creatures that are that are a, a lot more dramatic than little pixies jumping from from flower to flower collecting pollen for the bees you know mm. which is which is nice but it's not necessarily 
where the, um, the, the whole movement probably came from, or the whole uh, lexicon of imagery. You know, traditionally people talk about the banshee, the um, she, she's the Irish for fairy. And so, but she is a character that is not to be messed with in terms of, in terms of folklore and in terms of the story. So she is a fairy, but <laughs> let's just say <laughs> a quite package. One of the most well-known folklore storytellers in Ireland is Eddie Lenehan, mm -hmm. um, who is endorsing your book, or mm -hmm. shall we say, um, has read your book and mm -hmm. um, commenting on that. So we, we're looking forward to seeing his final comment on the book. Um, but could you talk a little bit about Eddie Lenehan and how his work influenced you and what made you want to to, to show your um, book that's soon to be released, The Realm of the Hair, to Eddie Lenehan and for his comment. Eddie, I suppose, is, is well-known in Ireland and well-known of probably my generation because he brought the sort of folkloric stories in a very meaningful and dramatic way to children's television. And when you see him in flow you sense that uh, he's command both of English and Irish, that you have a person here that is kind of between two worlds, uh, sees both things, has got a fluency to his language that is um, dramatic, energetic, is able to slow down and speed up, is able to add gravitas, is able to, to lightly tip across themes, uh, make you laugh and then stick you with a knife of some sort. So you kind of you're left gutted in some sometimes afterwards, but it's revelatory. Is an academic primarily in terms of collecting folklore, and then basically has got a huge collection of folklore that he has collected all the way up and down the west coast of Ireland, and all of those stories that have ex existed before they extinguished with with the last breath of the teller. So he has collected quite a few and has stories that are incredible and has done very real work, saved a fairy tree in, um, in Clare, like made a, a motorway go around the fairy tree because basically telling the force of his argument and historical reference and folkloric reference made it uh, this, this, this schach bush, this hawthorn that they use tie ribbons on back in the and still do, he made it. The people putting down these new motorways that have come to Ireland in the last maybe 20 years, he made them build their road around the tree because mm. they said badness will come to anything that will touch this tree. And he, uh, there is a force of argument, there is uh, a wealth of knowledge, and um, yeah, people listen. Mm. Um, so, a great man, yeah, great man, yeah. Picking up on the theme of working between worlds um, that is within the folklore tradition that I think that you can see quite clearly in a lot of your uh, your early theatre work as well as the, the, the realm of the hair. Um, I just wonder, do you want to talk about what it's like as a writer working between those worlds of of where you are working physically, where you're working, um, the place that you're in, and then those other worlds that might that are that are less visible, but maybe very tangible in some other senses. 
list to keep apartment, I suppose, that I would write because I, I was walking, working in Sydney and I was traveling up and down the, the train quite a bit. It would be a, a kind of an experience whereby I'd ease into it, get myself ready uh, from, you know, from Katumba down to, let's say, Winnie Falls and then kind of get into it. But strangely enough, like on the journey down and on the journey up, that there was always a there was a real barrier field in the Pean River when we travel over it. Either coming down, I'd have a lot of work done or a lot of movement on a certain point, basically almost like gravity was driving the driving the keys or driving the pin, whatever I was using that day. And that the, the gravity going down the mountain would drive it and and then you'd kind of ease it off as you'd be coming, you know, from into Penrith and then onto Parramatta. And but on the way back, things would really kick on once you passed Binapian on the way up and you started climbing the mountain. So it was a very sort of a Sisyphean uh, sort of concept that you were pushing the, the boulder up and down the mountain and you weren't really, you don't push it down the mountain, you just let gravity roll with it, you know, so it wasn't. Uh, definitely the Nepean, and it still uh, catches me today when I go over it. Definitely, it's a marker. It's a marker in the land where beyond things have you are moving into the mountains. You're moving into the into the uh, into the bush, and now there are a different set of powers. There's a different government. And I don't necessarily mean government in terms of administration and politics and stuff, but a government of the mind and a government of the soul and a government of the of the beliefs of where you are. And so definitely the Nepean as a physical thing was a very important thing for me. Mm. Um, and so I guess that idea of living in the Australian bush, how did that feel when you're casting your mind to Ireland and the depths of Kerry um, and the... The woods and the forests there did, did that how how was that process for you how did you go find going between the two the australian bush is a very strange and beguiling thing beguiling in the fact that it's so beautiful and so immense and so all encompassing and the flora and fauna is incredible and the birds are incredible and <clears throat> i suppose it makes such a statement with its immensity which is something that is not necessarily here in Ireland. But the one thing that's most beguiling of all is the gem, is the threat and almost a, 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 a disregard feel. Like if you, if you decide, if you think that you can take it on or if you feel yourself anyway equal to it, that it treats you with complete disdain. Whereas in Ireland, the woods are definitely more comforting and uh, cosseting, lots of rolling moss, uh, stowed here and there, nice lakes, nice rivers, but never the threat. And the threat is, uh, is the thing that is the attraction, you, where you'd be just looking across, look, looking across the Megalong Valley and you're kind of going, name it, Jesus, look at the size of this, do you know? This is the width of Ireland. Like the width of the country, I'm looking over the width of the country. And so nothing small. And as such, it kind of is quiet 
but like it even though it's silent it just it's roaring all the time and uh, requires obviously thousands of years of knowledge to manage you know there's a very reverential part of indigenous culture and people should try and learn as much as they possibly can because it's it's a it's an immense knowledge to have i mean we there are things here that let's say taking it out of the forest moving into stone circles and the like and we're very proud of these stone circles and they're a huge part of our heritage but in fairness they only go back like four or five thousand years ago maybe six thousand to some of the spots and uh, nothing like Australia, nothing that that ancient, that deep, that 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 old. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if that's answered your question. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I guess I'm just wondering about the earlier theatre works where the idea of the social and cultural context of Ireland is placed in stark contrast to another reality um, that may be existing in someone's mind in the way that they experiment with their sexuality, um, experiment with their identity, such as um, this ebony bird. So shown at the Cork Opera House, um, Half Moon Theatres in 2004 and 2010, also in the Fit Up Festival. Um, And then more recently, a play called Goddess, um, and yet to be aired in 2022, potentially by Blood in the Army at the Fit Up Festival again. In both of those works, I think it's really interesting that they're, they're set in rural Ireland and they have this really, co- you know, these contrasting um, characters in there that you wouldn't expect to find in rural Ireland, um, which, you know, what to expect to find, I don't know, but it just seems at, at odds with what is portrayed or what is the everyday I mean, it's that kind of un- otherworldliness that you bring into contrast with the real setting of place. Is that something that you did purposefully to kind of dismantle those traditions or question the traditions? Is it something that you did to um, just to kind of show the underbelly of what you think's underneath rural Ireland? What, what was the thinking behind those two works in terms of? their relationship to rural Ireland, I guess. With this ebony bird, it's, this gentleman has a kind of a crisis of faith and conscience and, and is attended to by two, by two kind of sprites or two sides of his conscience. One that is a kind of a bawdy sort of a character and the other one is, is quite uh, reserved, restrained. Basically, the contest is afoot. Uh, for the control of this gentleman's mind. Like the set itself was uh, designed by Pat Murray, who's a very famous set designer, in, originally from Cork, but worked in La Scala, was very well renowned. renowned. Uh, God rest him. And he produced this beautiful stage, which is raked, this raked stage, left and right, high pitch. And kind of it replicated both house and church and how they kind of fused together or mixed together and as such kind of replicated the dilemmas of this man's conscience in terms of the reality of being human, animalistic, and then being infused with the responsibility of the divine. He was a Saxton himself. And so 
that was a, a kind of a at its time it wasn't really particularly well received because it wasn't it was it really people didn't like it people didn't like it as a piece because it was a small bit too now it was a comedy <laughs> when you think about it it's a bit of a strange but there's a lot of comedic lines and a lot of comedic elements to it because but people i think that infuriated some people a lot because things were very very fresh I think that the set design was really powerful because of the way the two slanting parts of the stage come into one another. And even the furniture was askew if so it was kind of like it was broken and put back together in the place. So it was like this person was really living between these two realities and these two worlds. I think that the comedy in it really worked because of that reason that you alluded to earlier with Eddie Lenahan that, you know, you're making the person laugh and then you stick them with the knife um, in terms of revealing the darkness behind the humour um, and it shocks you because you've been laughing at that two seconds ago and then hang on a minute, that's not funny, do you know? Is that the one where the peeps of people walked out? <laughs> there was a lot of people walking out of my work. Those who liked it effused about it and those who didn't were actively against it. But what it did do is that there was definitely a raw nerve and, and still historically things are coming to the fore. We're still working through it, like as a nation, our own sins or our own guilt. It's not, there hasn't been enough apology. Mm. A lot of people didn't appreciate it going on stage and, and the company got a bit of a, you know, they got hauled a small bit, but um, it's part and parcel of it. Mm. It's part and parcel of the form that you bring something as a mirror, whether it be in its apparent reality form or not. Um, it shows certain things. It show, it's very good at highlighting great events or not, but most art, all art, is to illuminate the human condition and its vagaries. And in that respect, I thought, uh, I did my job. Do you want to talk a little bit about Goddess and how it's similar in some ways to this ebony bird because of the the setting of it, the kind of insular nature of the the life. Then there's this strangeness where it's in this other Greek mythology is brought in um, and laid on top of that. The forces that are at play are the church and the government and society and another term that they use here is called the valley of the squinting windows where people are looking at what you're doing and everybody knows your business and all of this sort of concept so i just wanted to subvert that in some shape or form by bringing in greek polytheism into um to an irish rural kitchen setting into what would normally be um prayers and uh, invocations to to god obviously the greeks have a lot more gods that you can actually turn around and you can refer to and their history of propitiation whether it be chickens or goats or people i suppose even pre pre-golden age where there was offerings up and gauging <clears throat> what the future would be relative to by going through the entrails of, a, of an animal you know that's been sacrificed and 
those sort of uh, concepts are were very very exciting when you match them with your traditional Irish kitchen drama. All of your plays to date have that kind of the memory of the past or the, the social context of the past and the and the kind of mystery or of the future or what another another place and time coming in um, in comparison to that can give. You do have a radio play on coming on the last Sunday of this month with the West Cork Fit Up Festival, um, Bearer Island Community Radio. And you're able to get that online. We'll put the links in the podcast notes. And it's called Crow's Toes in Aspic. And it's a short play. It's going to be performed by Joan Sheehy. Mm-hmm. And it really is somebody that has kind of appeared in the present moment that's been preserved in Aspic to a certain degree, um, um, emerging from prison after 30 years as a radio presenter. And so the context of the things she's speaking about and perhaps the things she refers to seem are strangely out of place. Um, do you want to talk about that that writing of that here and, and has actually physically been in Ireland informed that the writing of that? Probably has. It's a strange one. We're back, back in the village that I left um, nearly 30 years ago. So the similarities are. So am I that character? I don't know. Is there a kind of a barrage of nostalgia that has come back, uh, let's say, being in the, in the village that I'm from? Yes. Does that elicit memory? Yes. And as such, is are my memories are somewhat in aspect from the time I left? Maybe. But much has changed in the intervening 30 years, like from the late 80s, early 90s to now, anywhere is different. So the idea was to grab somebody, almost time travel, like put them in aspect, freeze them almost. She's called, her first name is called formaldehyde. And as such, she has been somewhat preserved and pickled. And she's taken out now and put in front of a microphone where she's got her own little radio show. And so she... um talks about things that she wants to talk about and as such is not cowed by any sort of uh, cancel culture or social media profiling or anything of the like. She has got her own agenda and it's misplaced, but it's funny. Again, the light and the dark is, is attractive. I keep thinking, of, I think it's an old Sufi, Sufi story about the gentleman who loses his, he tries to get home after being out one night, he loses his keys and he can't find the keys. He's up in the street and he's under a street lamp and he can't find the keys for his house. And uh, there's a policeman close by and he says to the policeman, he says, could you give us a hand? He says, I'm after losing my keys. They go looking for them under the street lamp. And after 15 or 20 minutes that they're looking for the for the keys, they can't find them. And the policeman says to the, to the guy, he says, did you lose them here? Like, did you lose the keys here? And he says, no, he says, I lost them out there in the darkness. And uh, the policeman says, like, well, why are we here? Why are we looking for your keys here? And your man says, because the fucking light's here, man. This is where the light is. So in some respects, there is an attraction to the light because that's where you are. You feel safe. But the vast majority of the time I find that the keys are in the darkness and it takes you going out on your hands and knees in the darkness, looking, fumbling, 
fooling around, trial and error, pulling and dragging and cutting your knees and cutting your hands and, you know, whatever the trials and tribulations are of the darkness. But that's where the keys are. Mm. That leads into the book, really, when you think about it, this, this epic journey of the realm of the hair and the idea of looking for something and you can't find it in the place where you currently are. You've got to go into this other world, into the darkness, mm -hmm. to go on this journey to find this thing. I won't talk too much about the book. I have read it. I mean, it's multiple iterations. It's going to be released in 2021 by Dixie Books in London. And um, very excited about this, as I know lots of people will be. Your first novel um, compared to your long career of writing for theatre. And so I, I guess I'll just hand it over to you to perhaps tell people about what is Realm of the Hair. Uh, Realm of the Hair is a story about a young girl whose mother goes missing. She's got one leg shorter than the other. She's got a very sort of an old style affliction. She's got a limp. And she returns to her grandparents in just as a Clarny in County Kerry, where she's going to be taken care of by loving grandparents. She finds something that's really uh, kind of, she doesn't know what it is, but it seems like a locket that has got something inside it. And uh, she finds that it's a small book with very strange writing in it. Her grandfather has a hair that he, he doesn't consider a pet, but is a wild hare from the National Park, which is down based in Clarny, around the lakes of Clarny, a beautiful national park. And inside in this national park, there is an ancient wood called the Olans, which is kind of a connection, collection of alders and oaks and some beautiful ancient trees that are there. And it's a very mystical place. And this hare leads our main character back to a world through the Olans, an alternate universe world where these animals change into characters called Ullanites. And she joins this army of Ullanites in search of her mother. And what is afoot is the, the forces of evil basically wish to control the power of nature. The organization known as the Regnum. And the Regnum wish to control all. And um, wish to control the magic and the power that is attached to nature. And then we find out that this book that she has is one of six books that once they are all collected, uh, one can wield power, nature's power as we see, as they see fit. So in an attempt to try and get her mother, she also has to try and collect the six books, this young lady. So this girl is basically the last stand really and joins the last stand against this this organization hmm. and what about the overall narrative of the book like this fight um to save nature i guess is there is there an environmental message in the overarching um kind of theme of the book in this fight to save nature there is in terms of anthropomorphizing different elements within nature, which in itself sounds contrarian, 
I wanted to, I suppose, highlight the fact that we are a part of nature. We are not above it. We're not uh, setting our face against it. We're not in, in, uh, um, in conflict with it. Ultimately, we are in it and we are part of it. And by anthropomorphing, <laughs> anthropomorphizing different parts of it that hadn't been necessarily <clears throat> outlined previously or trying to draw a line between understanding the movements of different things and the engagement of different animals and stratagem and love and care and the dilemmas that we normally associate with our own life to transpose that onto field mice, for example, was to me a, a, a gentle reminder that we ourselves are as an intricate part of the nature as the field mouse or the grain or the wind or the sea. So we are not above it, we're not beyond it, we're not objectively looking at it, while empirically I suppose we are in some respects, that science exists within because it is all encompassing. Uh, unless you can provide a similar type of planet on which to live, <laughs> Um, we are part of it and dependent on it. And so it is, we to be dependent is to be almost supplicatory to it as we are a uh, serf to its landlord or it is our king or our queen and that we are, it's, um, what's the word? We are its, its servant, even though we think that we are not that so if there is a message in that that is ultimately the message i think one of the things that's really fantastic about it is the mixture of um styles of writing and from the different points of view of different different places different times um but at the beginning of each chapter there's a a kind of an entry from this book which is which is um a kind of a guide for have, for something that the animals are teaching us as humans. Um, and, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that aspect? What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, there are little quatrains from all seven books, actually, um, that appear at the start of each chapter and basically um, outlining uh, some of the most the sort of the the immensity of some of the the ordinary actions that we assume um just go unnoticed so simple things like um the weaving of a web by a spider um the murmuration of starlings uh, so we 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 kind of tap into the consciousness of one of the birds in this murmuration we tap into the sort of the, the how to do in terms of building the, the web, small quatrains, like we're talking five, six lines of each. We connect with um, swallows that are preparing for a flight and wondering sort of what route they'll take, whether they'll go from 
you know, um, through Egypt and across the Mediterranean or go across over to Morocco and go up through Portugal and Spain and uh, where they're going to rest. Two, you know, simple things like two badgers in a set looking out at the rain. Small sort of vignettes of life in the same way as that when you're stuck in and it's raining outside, two people just looking out at the rain going, I hope this will finish, I hope this will move. Or, so in some respects, anthropomorphing the, the consciousness of the animal, um, of the phenomena, we have entries from the wind, we have entries from gulls, we have entries from the cloud, we have entries from, as I said, starlings, spiders, a mouse that's been caught by an owl and is gleefully observing uh, the world from a height for the first time. And he just thinks it's the most amazing thing in the world, but he kind of forgets he's in the talons of an owl that's bringing, bringing him back to the chicks. Um, so that is a kind of a soft realization that things aren't going so well. But so basically kind of giving, giving, uh, giving you, a, uh, I suppose, a glimpse of what, what life might be viewed as, just as opposed to animals, insects, phenomena, fauna, uh, and how they just do the, what they do. You know, snowdrops come up um, in January in Ireland. And the significance of the snowdrop for people in Ireland is incredible, particularly the older you get, because once you see your first snowdrop of the year, it's it's close enough to the death knell of winter and and things are spring like. And then you that leads to crocuses and that leads to daffodils and that leads to life and growth and surviving the winter. So the joy of seeing your first snowdrop is is quite it's ecstatic. And as such, I've written, you know, like the mind of a snowdrop coming up, thinking that she is the most um, incomparable warrior that's ever been, and that she herself has uh, slain winter. And where I go, you will follow pioneer style. So these are all of the sort of secrets that are in the book. You know, I think sometimes when, um, Indigenous peoples from around the world have got has have a more um, a deeper connection uh, with nature on a conscious level. There is a feeling, there is a a love, um, and invariably, I can't speak for different for different Indigenous peoples, but definitely in Ireland there was there was gods for all of these things, and you would pray to a god for you know, for uh, harvest or that's when things are domesticated. But prior to that, you'd, there would be propitiations for nuts, for boar, for, you know, the, the, the normal hunter-gatherer sort of uh, divinity that would have been involved. So um, there is definitely uh, a greater uh, um, symbiotic relationship with nature Sometimes the Western mind can discard stuff that isn't um, backed by reason and logic, in fact. And that sometimes is throwing baby out with bathwater because 
there is great, you know, with the Enlightenment, and, and there has been great benefits with the Enlightenment over the last three, four hundred years. There has also been great loss in terms of our uh, shared responsibility uh, with the land uh, and how we factor in our position within it. Um, I don't think we're at the top. I think we're, we're all on the level. We can convince ourselves that we're at the top and obviously we have in some respects convinced ourselves that we are masters over the domain, but then something happens, something big happens, and it reminds us of our need to be humble. And that is nature itself, because we're dependent on the planet. We can't live in space. We can't live on Mars just yet. We can't live in the moon. So we are earthbound. And as we are earthbound in our responsibilities and earthbound in terms of our care for ourselves and the world itself. Otherwise, you know, you hear shocking figures. It was recounted to me the other day that, you know, that the end of the world, or sorry, the environment is, 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 is uh, it's going to collapse or it's going to, you know, within the next seven years, it's not 50. But once it precipitates, it'll probably, you know, like gravity, you just speed up. So that's, that's the reasoning behind starting the chapters with those little vignettes, mm. those glimpses. Um, I'd like to lead in now with a passage from the book. Uh, would you like to just say a few words about the, the part that you've selected for our listeners? Yeah, this is a part, I suppose, after our main character, her name is Boudica, uh, returns to Ireland from, uh, from England in search of her mother. And uh, she meets her grandfather, Prospero uh, Moriarty. And he is there waiting for her. He's a, an old healing medic. Uh, witch doctor sort of character and he is waiting for her and he brings her to the car in which sits in the back seat Finn this wild hare who attends his every move and who turns out to be the one who brings Boudicca to the alarms and this is where the story starts and this is their first meeting outside they walk past people smoking in designated areas, hemmed in like cattle, waiting calmly for the bullet. Arriving at the car, Prospero put her suitcase in the boot and opened the back door, inviting Boudicca to climb in. The smell from the car was an even more intense mixture of Prospero's medicinal creations. To her surprise and no little delight, sitting on the back seat was a fully grown hare. She thought it rabbit at first, but it stood more upright and its outline was clearly different to that of a rabbit, more distinguished and leonine. The hare looked at Boudicca with dark, interrupted eyes, convincing her of the animal's wildness. He thumped his paw twice on the pan of the seat and then looked away. Meet Finn said Prospero, 
banging the driver's door a few times, the distended seatbelt catching in the latch. Don't pet him until he gets used to you. He's wild and wild hairs are fearless. Wild, said Boudicca. He could rob a bank, that fella, said Prospero, as he shut the door and turned the key, laying the seatbelt across his body without latching it into the clasp. Fearless. Prospero looked cautiously in the rear view mirror. I didn't know you kept animals, Grandad. Finn is keeping me more like, said the old man. Finn. Boudicca looked at the hair and considered the name. For the first part of the journey, she couldn't help but stare at Finn, who stood on his back legs, paws on the door, getting a better view of the passing countryside. His ears flopped over the back of his head, giving him a look of sleek intelligence and self-possession. When the wonder had worn off, Boudicca joined him, looking out her own window. She soon became numbed by the blurring ditches and the slow rolling fields in the middle distance.